Well, over the past several weeks, we've been taking a break from Matthew so that we can look into how to live with the body of Christ. This diversion, you'll recall, has been motivated by our study of Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus fielded that question from the disciples about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In his answer, in his answer, he not only explained that the question was moot, because there's no such thing as a greatest when it comes to his disciples. But when he fielded that question, he used it as an opportunity to explain the kind of care that the disciples should have for one another in the church. You'll recall he explained that every disciple is precious in God's sight. And so not only should his disciples do everything possible to keep another uh, brother from stumbling, but they should pursue one another with dogged determination when one of them starts to fall into sin. He further explains that if a brother should repent, they need to be accepted back into the body. It doesn't matter how many times they fall into sin. If they repent, they should be forgiven. The relationship resets. It starts over every time. And the implication is that it's never okay for one of his disciples to give up on a fellow disciple. They keep loving. They keep pursuing with great patience, even when a brother is deeply ensnared in sin. Because every disciple matters. It's never okay to leave one behind. He compares the church to a flock of sheep, and he says that just as one shepherd will go and look for a single lost sheep, because all of the sheep matter to him, so also does he expect his disciples to treat one another. It's an eye-opening picture of the kind of love that we're to have for one another in the body of Christ, and one that unfortunately is not often reflected in the life of a church. And so rather than sprint past this concept and move on to Matthew 19, I've decided to take a month and camp out here, linger a little while longer over what it looks like, uh, love looks like in the body of Christ. My approach to this topic has been stated primarily Uh, To use, I guess, more, I'm an English major, so to use English language, it's stated in the indicative and not the imperative. Uh, In other words, uh, rather than focus on what actions we should do in the body, I've, I've tried to focus on who we are. This doesn't mean that I've ignored actions entirely. I think there are, there's a lot of discussion, uh, there has been a lot of discussion about what we should do in the body. But if you've noticed, I've tried to make sure that these recommendations have been based first on who we are. Even last week, which was probably the message that has been the most intensely focused on what we should do in the body of Christ, even then the title was Be Involved. I gave you three core things you should do in that message as a part of the body of Christ, but my goal really more than the specifics of what you should do was just to show you that you should simply put on the mindset of involvement. That you would see that you cannot approach life in the body passively. You must be an active member of the body of Christ. I mentioned that at the beginning of last week's message and then again at the end. I said we have to reverse the polarity in our approach to the church. We have to stop asking, what do I get out of the church? And instead ask, what can I put into it? That's what body life looks like. And that even more than the specifics of what we should do in the body. That was the main idea I wanted you to catch. We must be involved. So this has been my approach, to focus more on who we are in Christ and what we are in Him, and then to use that as a guide to direct our approach to life in the church. And as we move through this series, I hope you can see why I've taken this approach. The Bible explains that the way that we live up to the calling that we received in Christ is through the renewing of the mind. 
In other words, we don't just change our behavior. We must change our thinking. When you believed in Christ, the Spirit renewed your heart so that you would no longer reject God. Instead, you would love Him. Jesus gave you that ability through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, your mind didn't immediately follow suit. As Paul indicates in places like Ephesians 4, 17-24, and Romans 12, 1-2, you still bring into your new life a fallen mind that's been corrupted by error and deception. And so not only must you struggle against your sinful flesh, which, by the way, you still possess even after your new birth by the Spirit, but you must do so while fighting against all kinds of lies that incite your flesh to rebel against God. The way that you overcome these fleshly desires is by informing your mind with the Scripture so that armed with the truth, the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.17, and this is why. The Spirit uses the Word of God to attack the lies and deception that Satan uses to incite our flesh and tempt us into sin. As we reorient ourselves to, to God's truth through the study of the Scripture, the Spirit then convicts us of the truth and propels us into right action. And this is why I've been primarily focused on who you are in Christ. The way that you'll grow in Christ, in a sense, it's not even by changing just what you think, but it's going to happen in changing how you think. You have to renew your mind so that you start looking at the world in the same way that God looks at the world. You must think God's thoughts after Him. As it relates to the body, this means thinking like a kingdom citizen. It means knowing who you are and then thinking through that grid. This is where I think body life really begins. It starts with understanding who you are, not just what you should do. It starts with understanding that you are now, in Christ, a citizen of the the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it starts with understanding that this world is not your home. It starts with understanding that there is in Christ an imperishable and undefiled inheritance already laid up for you in heaven. That's where your home is, with God in heaven, with Jesus in His kingdom. And so you are but a foreigner in this world. You are a sojourner who is here residing for only a short period of time before you go home to receive the inheritance that you've already possessed in Christ. This is why I think the church very often fails to live like the church. You have Christians who believe the gospel, they trust in Christ for salvation from their sins, but then they fail to understand how that reality shapes their identity. They still see themselves as the same way that they did before they came to know Christ, except now with fire insurance. Instead of realizing that in Christ, they are a new creation. Their goals, their priorities, they're still the same as they were before. All because they don't realize that in Christ they have actually been made ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven and that that's now their identity. So they don't see the church as a community of people that has been tasked with the proclamation of the gospel until the return of Christ. They don't see it as a kind of missions team to belong to, to be involved with, to serve and grow with. They think it's just a building you go to to hear sermons about how to be good or how to live a happier, more fulfilled life. When you see yourself as a kingdom citizen, though, it completely transforms the way you look at the church. 
Suddenly, the sermons that you hear on Sunday, they're not just about how to be good so God won't get mad at you, or how to have a happier marriage, or, or be a better employee. They're messages that equip you for your mission. They're messages designed to help you live in holiness, holiness so that you can be a faithful representative of your king. They're messages designed to help you know your God better and His gospel better, and not only so that you can worship Him and experience the riches of His grace, but also that you can proclaim the message of salvation with greater clarity. And then the church. Suddenly it's not a building that you go to or a function that you attend. It's a community that you belong to. You actually love the people there because they belong to Christ. They're co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven with you. They're eternal brothers and sisters. In fact, they're more than this also. They're they're co-laborers for the gospel. And so you invest in them because you've been assigned collectively to advance the kingdom of heaven together through the proclamation of the gospel. This is why I've approached this series by focusing primarily on who you are in Christ. It's because I think it's when Christians get this that they begin to approach life in the body rightly. The key to living rightly in the body of Christ isn't found in just knowing what to do. It's in knowing who you are. It's in reorienting yourself to think differently about the church, to see your life in Christ in a whole new light and allow that to transform your understanding of what these relationships mean what they're there for, what they do. So that's been my approach, to talk about who you are so you can put on the right mindset towards the body. Up to this point, I've explained that you are new in Christ and that you are one with His church. So you're all ambassadors of Christ who have been tasked with this proclamation of the gospel. And this means that you must be in fellowship with Christ's church. And the reason for that is because as ambassadors... I've explained. You've been called to represent Christ in holiness. And Christ's means of making you holy, according to the Scripture. In fact, when you think about it, His means even of advancing the kingdom of heaven is through His church. It's as the church speaks the truth to one another in love, that it offers up a unified expression of worship to God, one in which the gospel is proclaimed clearly and with great power, So you should be in fellowship with Christ's church. And not only this, but I've explained that this new identity should even cause you to look at your fellow Christians differently. Again, you are new in Christ, and this means that you're no longer to regard Christians by what they are on the outside, but rather by what they are in Christ. In Christ, they too are a new creation, not just you, but they are too. And this means that you should esteem and care for them, because they're co-heirs of Christ along with you. They are your heavenly brothers and sisters. So those were the first two weeks. I explained that you are new and you are one. Last week I explained how those concepts should affect how you live with the body. And I said be involved. Get active. And get active specifically by learning, speaking, and serving. But get active. Today I want to talk to you about the attitude that you should take to this involvement. So we've seen who you are. And we've seen how it should affect your approach to the body. We've seen that it should lead you to be involved. But what's the sort of mindset that you should have towards this involvement? How should you think about this involvement? And to this I would say, be intense. Be intense. That's the title for today's message. 
be intense. To approach life and the body rightly, you must not only be involved, but you should be involved with great intensity. And in keeping with the pattern for this series, I want to start with the mind. I want to show you why you should be intense. And I want to start there so that hopefully this integrates into your thinking and you are then intense. I want to start here so that in understanding why you become passionate about your involvement in the church, so that that's something that you care about. And then after I've shown you why you should be intense, we'll discuss how to be intense. We'll talk about what body life looks like if you're pursuing it with intensity. We'll talk about what zeal looks like in the body of Christ. Let's go ahead and start first with why you should be intense. I'm just going to be real straightforward here this morning. I'm not going to to try to wow you with some kind of clever outline or something like that. I want to give you just two reasons why you should be passionate about life in the body. And just to let you know up front, these are essentially summary points, meaning that we've already laid the scriptural foundation, the theological foundation for these ideas over the past several messages. So I'm not going to be in the text as much as I normally am. All I want to do today is connect the dots from our past three messages so you can see why you should be incredibly passionate about the growth of your brothers and sisters. And again, this will hopefully encourage you to follow through on what we've talked about over the past few weeks. So once again, there are at least two reasons why you should be passionate about life in the body. And the first reason I'd give is this, the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Be intense about the body because you love Christ. And what do I mean by this? Well, I think this works on a couple of different levels. On one hand... You should be zealous for the church because you love Jesus. You're passionate about your brothers and sisters because you love Jesus. So like if you're thankful for Christ, if you're grateful for what He's done at the cross, if you delight in the gospel and you want to express thanks to Him, then the way you do it, listen, it's not through some kind of ascetic religious performance or something like that. It's by loving His church. Probably the clearest example of this is found in Matthew 25, 31-45. If you would, please turn there. Again, that's Matthew 25, verse 31. In this passage, Jesus is explaining to His disciples how He's going to enter into judgment at His return. And this is what He says, Matthew 25, 31-45. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the, the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, if you're paying attention here, what Jesus says in this passage is pretty significant. He's saying that care for the church is a salvation issue. The one who loves the church, Jesus says, will go to heaven. The one who does not, will not. And this isn't because care for the church saves a person or something like that. There's no merit to be found in it. God will not accept anyone into heaven on the basis of their care for the church. Again, a person is saved only by grace through faith in Christ. So how can Jesus state that only those who love... Again, this is the, this is the church. These, the least of these my brothers... This is the church he's talking about. How can he state that only those who love the church will enter into heaven if it's not a work that earns salvation? You see the answer in verse 40. Jesus says to the one who cared for the church, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then in verse 45, he turns to the one who did not care for the church, and he says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. The point is that care for the church is an expression of love for Christ. And it's an expression of love to such a degree that one can conclude that if a person does not love the church, then they do not love Christ. That's how Jesus makes judgment on this basis. It's because one's faith will be determined by love for Christ's church. James says a similar thing in James 2, 14-17. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The idea is that salvation is by grace through faith, but real faith, living faith, will manifest itself in works. It's living, it's active, it does things. And, it's, and it does not just works generally, but specifically, if you notice, it's expressed in love for the church. John says the same thing in 1 John four sixteen to 21 when he writes... He says, so we have come to know and believe, that, uh, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I want to be clear here. My point 
in bringing up these passages is not to scare you into love by saying, if you don't love the church, then you're going to hell. In fact, one of the verses I just read, 1 John 4, 18, seems to go against that idea, saying there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, if you're only loving the church because you fear God, you're not actually saved, because it means you're trying to earn your salvation with your love. That's not the way that John talks about love. He describes the motive for true love like this, 1 John 2, 10, uh, 4, 10 to 11. He says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The idea is that the Christian loves. And that's not to earn God's grace. Rather, they love because they've already received it. They love as an, as an expression of gratitude to God. And that's the point that I'm trying to drive at too. If you're grateful for what God has done for you in Christ, if you love Jesus because of His great love for you, then the way that you express this is not through some cold religious observance. It's by loving His church. You see, there's nothing that you can really give to Jesus. Not to Jesus Himself to show your gratitude. At least not anything that He doesn't already have. He's God. And this means that there isn't anything you can give to Him to improve His existence. He's completely sufficient in and of Himself. And not only this, anything you could give to Him is actually already His. He gave it to you. Us trying to give to Jesus is like a child going shopping and then asking his mother or father for money so he can buy them a birthday present. I mean, it's definitely a kind gesture, and it's one that's cherished by his or her parents for its sincere expression of dependency and love, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily improve the parent's existence when the child buys that present. The child only gave back to his parents what was, in a sense, already theirs. And this is how it is with Jesus as well. For him, the best way of showing thanks is by loving his church. Understand, Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He gave himself for the church. As we saw in Matthew 18, every single one of his disciples is precious in his sight. I mean, if he was willing to suffer the wrath of God for them, it means that he has a pretty intense care for them, right? They matter to him. He desires their good. And so while you can't improve Jesus' existence by giving to Him, guess what you can do? You can improve the existence of His church. You can show one another mercy. You can help one another in your sanctification. And that Jesus delights in. To see His church cared for, this is what He loves. It's kind of like when someone famous passes away. Sometimes they'll ask for a donation to be given to a charity instead of sending flowers to the funeral. This happened with uh, Nancy Reagan the other, other week. She passed away, and that's one request that she made before her death. She wanted donations to be made to the Ronald Reagan Memorial Foundation in lieu of flowers. And why is that? Well, it's because f- while flowers are a kind gesture, there's little use in sending thousands and thousands of flowers to a dead person. 
That's kind of how it is with Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't dead, right? He's very much alive. But you're not going to give Him anything He doesn't already have. He appreciates your love. But He wants you to direct it onto His people. That's the best way that you can serve Him, by serving His church, the church that He died for. So again, if you love Christ, if you rejoice in the salvation that He purchased for you, if you delight in your identity and you wish to show thanks, then this is one reason why you should be intense for the church. You should be zealous for the well-being of His church. If you love Him intensely, and we should, right? I mean, what He's done for us is amazing. Well, if that gets you excited, then this is how that excitement is best expressed, by love for His church. That's one way that the love of Christ motivates us to love the church. We love Christ intensely, and because we love Him intensely, we have an intense love for His church. Now, in a sense, that's how it should happen. But that's not how it always happens, right? Like, I should love the church because I love Christ. And so since my love for Christ should be intense, I should have an intense love for His church. That sounds nice. But that's not always how it works, is it? Sometimes I have intense love for Christ. And it's good to know that this is how I can express my love for Him in these moments. But there are a lot of times when I don't love Christ, right? You've been there before, I would expect, haven't you? There have been moments where you don't love Christ. At least not like you know you should. What do you do then? Once again, I would say, love the church. So on one hand, you love the church because you love Christ, but you should also love the church when you want to love Christ. So do you want to grow in your love for Christ? That too is accomplished by loving His church. You love the church in order to grow in your love for Christ, in order to experience His love. So how does that work? I say it works in in two ways. First, when you pour yourself out in service to Christ's church, you experience firsthand a small measure of the price Jesus paid in His love for you. So like, as you try to live sacrificially, when you surrender your rights for your brothers and sisters, when you bear with them when they sin against you, when you give of your own time and sweat for their well-being, often with little thanks in return, do you know what you're experiencing? You're experiencing just a small, just a tiny taste of what Jesus went through for you. Meaning that whenever you suffer loss for the sake of the church, you actually gain a deeper understanding of what Christ's love for you really means. And as you love in that way, as you follow in His footsteps and go, so this is what Jesus did for me? Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to grow in your love for Christ. You're going to go, Wow, Jesus' love is amazing. You gain that as you suffer loss for His body. In fact, it's often as you pour yourself out and are spent for the sake of the church that you're even going to be driven into a deeper relationship with Christ as you depend on Him more and more for the strength to love those who quite often are not lovable. Paul speaks to this effect in Philippians 3 when he talks about forsaking everything, not only to know the power of Christ's resurrection and attain the resurrection from the dead, but also to, quote, share his sufferings. That was a goal for Paul. To know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and share 
in his sufferings. Paul knew there was blessing in the pain. Blessing to the degree that while sitting in prison in chapter 4, he could write, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He understood there's joy that comes through this. There's sanctification, growth that comes through this. And it becomes a blessing. So that's one way that service to the church grows us in our love for Christ. The other way that this grows us in our love for Christ comes from Ephesians 3 and 4. If you recall, Paul says in Ephesians 3 that he prayed that the Ephesians might, quote, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wanted them to understand, experience the love of Christ. And then he continues in the beginning of chapter 4, by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He pleads with them. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ, so be one. And as he expresses why they need to be one, he goes on to say that it's because the way they will grow into maturity is by their ability to speak the truth to one another in love. The body builds itself up in love. That's why Paul goes from saying, I want you to know the love of Christ. He goes from that to saying, so be unified. The reason is because the church matures itself. And every part plays a role, you'll recall. Every part needs the other to achieve this maturity. This has been one of the major themes of this series. Maturity happens in unity with the body of Christ. Worship happens when we're growing together with the body of Christ. So like if you want to grow in the knowledge of Christ, if you want to understand His love better in worship, then you'll invest in your brothers and sisters. Because their maturity in Christ feeds back around to you when they in turn build you up. So the love of Christ, that's one reason why you should pursue life with the body of Christ with great intensity. If you love Christ, then service to the body is the best way to express it. And even if you don't love Christ, you should be intense in your involvement anyway so that you can. You'll grow in your love for Christ as you get involved in the body. That should motivate you to pour yourself out in service to the body of Christ. That should lead you to pursue your brothers and sisters with great intensity. So what's the second reason? The love of Christ, that's one reason why we should be intense. What's the second? It's this, eternity. You should be intense about life in the body because your life on earth here is short. And the investment that you make in the body is going to reap eternal consequences. We've already seen one aspect of this principle played out in Matthew 25, where Jesus actually meets out eternal judgment based in part on a person's relationship with his body. But there's another aspect of this principle that's important as well, which goes back to the new identity that we've received in Christ. (coughs) Again, back at the very beginning of this series, I said that you are all ambassadors of Christ to the world. And I said that what this means is that you must all be holy. You are in Christ, 
And by virtue of that relationship, you are now sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven. That in and of itself means that you should be holy. And the order here is very important, by the way. You should not be holy in order to become a child of God. You are to be holy because you already are a child of God. In Christ, you have become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And this by itself means that you should live according to the laws, to the laws and customs of that kingdom. You should be holy. But this is even more true, most especially true, when you consider that you are not only citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but ambassadors. The church is not here on the earth simply to pass the time until death. No, the church is here to bear witness to Christ. We've seen this already several times in Matthew, and we're going to see it again at the very end of the gospel when Jesus issues the Great Commission. What this means is that you must be holy. Because as ambassadors, part of your job is to reflect the nature and character of your king. You must be sanctified while you proclaim Christ. In fact, I would argue that this is really the purpose of your sanctification right now. You're not to be holy simply for holiness sake. After all, if that's all that God desired for you, He could take you home right now and make that happen. You'll worship Him more perfectly in heaven than you ever will here on earth. So if that was the goal of your sanctification, to simply glorify God and worship, you'd be in heaven with Jesus. But the Scriptures say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You understand? God called Israel out to be a holy nation so that through their holiness they might proclaim the character of God to the nations. As He told them in Exodus 19, 5-6 at the giving of the Mosaic Law, He says, If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was always the purpose of the Mosaic Law. It was never intended as a means to eternal life. It was intended to be God's means of reaching the nations. Israel, in this sense, was God's missions program in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus responds to Israel's rejection of His kingdom offer by transferring that mission to His church. He doesn't reject Israel. He doesn't abandon the covenant that God made with Abraham. Israel is still to be an object of God's blessing. But in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, God has temporarily transferred their mission to the church. And now it is the church that will reach the nations. And they will do so as they proclaim the gospel while reflecting God's character in the way they live. That's why Peter repeats that Exodus 19 language in application to the church. Jesus has left His church in the world to proclaim His glory through its holy character. And He sanctifies this church progressively so that the church can bear witness to the fact that Jesus is both alive and active. He isn't dead. Jesus dwells in us through the power of the Spirit. And He bears witness to this truth by constantly washing us and conforming us into His image with His Word. I really hope you get this, because this is so critical. How do you proclaim 
to the world that Jesus has risen from the dead. Is it with your words? Absolutely. No doubt. No one will be saved apart from a verbal proclamation of the gospel. But what is the sign that verifies this message? Is it miracles? Or healings? Or scientific proofs? No, it's your sanctification. That is the evidence to the world that Jesus is raised from the dead. And if you doubt what I'm saying, I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans 6 again. The fact that you will be united with Jesus in a resurrection like His is proven by the fact that now, presently, you walk in newness of life. Jesus' victory over sin is partly verified by the fact that you now, presently, are no longer enslaved to your sin. This means that your sanctification is critical to your mission, and not just your mission, but to the entire church's mission. It's not optional. Your sanctification isn't just a good idea. No, the gospel will advance as we walk in newness of life. So what does this mean? It means that you must be in fellowship with Christ's church. And not just be in fellowship, but you must invest in Christ's church. Why? Well, because there are eternal consequences at stake in the matter. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I I believe it was on on a Sunday night discussion, actually. But the church as a whole, you see this kind of increasingly lackadaisical attitude in their faith. There's no real zeal for God or for His glory in her walls. It's people, I hate to say, they're increasing. We're increasingly shallow. There's no depth of understanding of His Word or His righteousness. Even its understanding of the Gospel is quite often superficial. The people as a whole are immature. And not just immature, but they're actually unconcerned about spiritual things. So we talk about the forgiveness of God and of the power of Christ to conquer sin. But then when you look into our lives, what do you find? Divisions? Strife? Jealousy, anger, sensuality, idolatry, greed, pride, basically all the things that you would find in the world. We say that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and made citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we live and talk as if Satan were still our master. Nothing's changed. And then we wonder, why are we losing influence in the world? And how are we going to get it back? I guess the problem is that we're not culturally relevant or or maybe we need to adopt a better social media strategy or maybe we need to go canvassing and find out what people want in church so we can give them that. Maybe. Maybe. But maybe the problem is that we are not holy. Maybe the problem is that we go and proclaim an empty tomb but the stench of death coming off of us is so strong that no one believes us. We completely eviscerate the heart of our message with the way we live. And yes, I understand that God is sovereign over our salvation and He can use broken vessels to accomplish His purposes. I'm not trying to take any of that away. All I'm saying is that if we're wondering why the world keeps spewing out the living water that we offer, maybe we should start by looking on the inside of the cup and not the outside. And that's like the exact opposite of what we see the church doing so much of the time. Let's face it, there's nothing innovative or exciting about be holy. This is standard basic stuff. It's not going to sell a lot of books. But isn't this really where the Scripture says we should begin? So my point is, you must be holy 
because there's eternal consequences to your holiness. The gospel will advance as we turn to God in humble submission and faith. And how will we do this? How will we grow into maturity? It's by being in fellowship with one another. It's by speaking the truth in love to one another. It's by serving one another and building one another up in love. Listen, it's by investing in one another. Why should you be passionate about being with the body, about serving with them, about investing in them? Why should you pursue the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters with great intensity? Well, it's because there are eternal consequences at stake in your collective holiness. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. And again, I'm not trying to deny the sovereignty of God in salvation when I say that, but God has clearly indicated that He intends to save through means. And I'm saying that this is one of them. Just as God will not save without a preacher, Romans 10, so also He means to work through a holy church. That should motivate you not just to be holy, but to be involved with the body of Christ, I hope. So these are the two reasons why you should pursue life in the body with great intensity. Love for Christ. And really, I say eternity, but when you think about it, it's love for your brother. And love for the glory of God. What should you do then if you are passionate about this? I mean, suppose you do want to be urgent about the growth and sanctification of the church. What do you do? Well, I've already, I've already talked about the activities to do. Last week, you learn, you speak, you serve. But now saying that we do have an attitude of intensity, what does that look like? What does it mean to be intense about the body? And to that I'd offer two suggestions, and for time's sake I'm obviously going to touch on these just briefly. What does it mean to be intense about the body? First, it's intentional. Intensity for the body will be expressed with intentionality in actions. And what I mean is that the one who is passionate about the body, the one who is zealous about his or her own growth in Christ as well as the growth of their brother and sisters, they're not going to just sit back and wait for it to come to them. They're not going to wait for people to come to them and start a relationship. They're not going to start serving only after someone has asked them. They're not going to speak only after they've been spoken to. No, they're active. There's an urgency in them that says, this has to be done yesterday. And this urgency expresses itself in the fact that they are not passive with relation to the spiritual health of their fellow believers. They're active. They initiate things. You think about it, and this is what Jesus demanded throughout Matthew 18. You know, the shepherd doesn't see the sheep wandering off and then lean on his staff and go, boy, I sure hope that sheep finds his way home. No, Jesus says, go after the sheep. It matters, it matters. So drop what you're doing and run after Him. Initiate. Jesus doesn't say when your brother comes to you confessing a sin, tell him his fault. What would be the point in that, right? No, He says if your brother is in sin, you go and tell him his fault. You pursue him. He doesn't want His disciples to only play defense. He wants them on offense too. They're not only to avoid stumbling blocks, right? But they're actually to strive to increase their brother or sister's holiness. We are to stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 
Listen, that takes a level of planning. Last week I mentioned how on one occasion when I was a new Christian, I had this older friend who had heard some of my plans for a weekend and realizing that I was going to expose myself to temptation, he said to me, you know, don't, don't be surprised if I call you this Saturday to make sure everything's all right. And he did. And do you realize that doesn't just happen. There were several days that passed before the weekend came, but he didn't forget And that wasn't because he was just laying around on Saturday and thought, I wonder what Ryan is up to. He never called me outside of that. We were friends at church, but never outside of that. He never just called up to chat. He did that Saturday. And the reason is because after our conversation, he made a point to himself to say, I'm going to call Ryan this weekend. And then he kept that in the fore of his mind until the weekend so that when Saturday rolled around, he remembered to call. I've said that we need to get to know each other, that we need to spend time with each other. How is that going to happen if it's not happening already? Well, it requires someone to say, I'm going to invite so-and-so to dinner this week, and then do it. It's not going to happen on its own. And quite often, listen, quite often, it's even going to require a change in priorities. And I think this leads us into the second way. That intensity is demonstrated in the church. It's not only intentional, but it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Look, there are so many, there are only so many hours in a day, and only so many days in a life. And what this means is that your life is nothing more than a series of choices. And the product of your the product of your life, the contribution it makes, will by and large be determined by the kinds of choices you make. I actually think about this every year around my birthday. Another year rolls around and I say to myself, well, I guess it's finally looking like I'll never become a professional hockey player. You know, I mean, I, I know I had the skill, right? That, wasn't, that was never the issue. That wasn't the problem. But I chose to forsake that path in order to go into pastoral ministry. And now I'm getting too old to play pro hockey. I can't go back and do that now. Well, that's what life is. It's a series of choices. And with every hour of your life, you're determining how you will spend it. You can't do everything you want. And to say, and and sad to say, but you're a finite being bound by a limited amount of time and energy and resources. So how do you want to invest it? That's one of the questions that you have to ask yourself. If you want to be able to edify the church through your words, again, understand that's not going to just happen. I know that's what a lot of people think. Just speak from the hip. Just start rattling off opinions. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to sound good. But as we've seen, that's not how the body is edified. It's edified as we speak the truth in love. That requires study. So if I'm going to encourage my brother or sister with the scriptures, guess what? I have to take time to read. I have to study. And this not only requires that you make the conscious intentional decision to learn. But quite often it will, it will require you to choose to do this over doing some other thing you might enjoy. It's the same thing with building relationships. A friendship requires a serious investment of time. So if you want to develop a friendship with one of your fellow believers, it's probably going to require that you choose to forego some other source of enjoyment. 
If you're going to expend yourself in service, it's going to leave you depleted of energy, perhaps to do something else you might like. If you're going to give financially to your brothers or sisters, I mean, unless you're filthy rich or something like that, then it's probably going to mean that you're going to have to choose to skip out on a few other things that you could purchase for yourself. So what are you going to invest in? You know, every night I finish my day, and I have a few non-working hours to spend before I go to sleep and start my day over. So every night I have a choice I can make. And it's the same for every one of you. I can spend it with my wife and kids. I can spend it maybe calling my dad or my brother. I can spend it hanging out with friends. I can spend it working on the house. I could spend it reading a book. I could spend it watching TV, surfing the internet, doing some other fun thing like that. And that choice, night after night over the course of my life, will determine to some degree the product of my life. And it's the same way with virtually every decision I make. What I choose to do for a career, what I choose to learn, whether I choose to save or spend, and what I choose to buy when I do spend, the effect of those choices is cumulative. Point being, you will one day reap what you sow. Personally, I like to watch TV, but I have to tell you, I don't watch TV as much now as I did 10 years ago. And this is why. It's not because watching TV is bad or anything. I still watch it some. I still enjoy it. I just don't watch it as much as I did before. And the reason is because I got tired of looking back on my life and going, what's happened to the past 10 years? Where did it go? What have I done with it? And then realizing, that's right, I spent it watching TV. I'm not content with that. I look at my boys and I look at my little girl and I go, what do I want 20 years from now? Do I want a bunch of memories of TV shows that I once watched? Most of which I'll have probably forgotten. Or do I want spiritually mature children? And do I want a strong relationship with them? And I say I want that. And I realize that starts now. That starts with the choices about how I spend my time now. It's the same way with you in the church. Do you want to have a strong relationship with Christ? Do you want to have deep, edifying relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters? Do you want to see the gospel advanced and souls saved? Listen, it can happen. God has given us all the resources necessary for it to happen, but it's going to take time, and it's going to take energy. It's going to require sacrifice. You just have to make a choice. You have to decide what you really want. You have to decide what you want to invest in. And I hope you understand, this isn't meant as a warning or a threat. I'm not trying to guilt trip you when I say this. This is meant as an encouragement. The idea is you can have a deeper relationship with Christ. You can see people come to salvation. God has promised that His Word will not return void. You can take confidence in the fact that as you invest in spiritual things, you will reap an eternal spiritual reward. So if this is what you want, you can have it. But it will require sacrifice. So what do you want to invest in? And as you weigh that choice, let me read, you, read to you a passage that we're going to encounter again in a couple of weeks. It comes at the conclusion of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus has just told the rich young ruler that 
He'll have to sell everything to follow him. And the rich young ruler goes away sad, for he had great possessions. Shortly after that, Peter says to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We've made our choice, Jesus, Peter says. We're invested in you. We've placed our bets on you, and we've left behind our families. We left behind our homes. We've left everything to follow you. So what about us? What's our return on investment? What kind of a harvest are we going to reap for what we've sown? And Jesus says this. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's a reward that Jesus is promising to those twelve disciples specifically. But then He says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Listen, any good investor will tell you a hundredfold return makes for a pretty good investment. Point is, Jesus will bless you and he will bless you abundantly. When you bet on Jesus, you can't lose. So get involved. Get invested in the body. Be intense about it. Make the decision to learn, to speak, to serve in the body, and then follow through. Be intentional. Make a plan. And when choices have to be made, when priorities must be set, set the right ones. Yes, there is a cost that comes with pursuing life in the body, but it is far outstripped by the reward. So be intense and be blessed. Let's pray.